Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. We have a guest on today's PooCast. That's what we're calling it today. Oh, I see what you did there. I know. It's just, you know, my the kid is six months old now. The dad jokes are just coming in strong. They're coming in strong. So the reason we're calling it a PooCast today is we have Melissa Wilson here with us. She is on the manure management team. I'm an assistant professor and extension specialist in manure management and water quality. I would have definitely missed the water quality piece. Yeah. Melissa Wilson is here. She is going to help us talk through all of manure management today, and we might even get into water quality, um, but there's a lot to talk about. And I'm really surprised that we hadn't talked about it yet. Uh, it hadn't come up, and it's something that every farmer probably thinks about every day uh, in what to do with manure, how to move it, what storage is like, where it's going to go, all those different things. We're excited to have her today. This is going to be a crappy episode. Ha ha ha. Ha 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 ha. I've been, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I know. Okay. I mean, if, if we're talking about poor jokes, I can say that I have the number one extension program and number two. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. I am all about <laughs> dad jokes right now. I love it. It's so perfect. many poop jokes. I know. Love it. We'll try this to keep it under control. Bradley will tell you there is a correct answer. There is. There is only one correct answer. There's they not are, they are lying answer, to but... you. They are lying. Uh, let's go with dairy. What is your favorite dairy breed? I like the jerseys. They're so adorable. Yes. 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 That is the correct answer on the dairy <sighs> side. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a great answer. We're going to update the count. Are we ahead now? Are no, we ahead? we're still behind, but it's okay. We're catching up. That puts Holstein's at five, Jersey's at four, Brown Swiss at four, Dutch Belted at two, Normandy at one, and Montbelliard at one. We're getting there. We're getting close. The correct answer was Jersey, and thank you for for picking them. <laughs> no, the correct answer is anything. Okay, they all produce Dutch manure, right. so they're all your favorite. Yes, the, all of the cows produce manure, and that's what yes. we're here to talk about today. So I think we need to start real big, real general. What What is manure management? When you say that, what are you talking about? Well, we know that everything that goes in must come out, and in fact, like 75% of what goes in comes out the back end, which means, I mean, you know how much a cow eats, correct? So all 75% of that's coming out the back end. And people don't like to deal with it. It stinks on its way out. And sometimes it's runny and it's just not fun to have to figure out what to do with. So that's kind of one of my jobs is figuring out what are the best ways to manage it, especially environmentally. There's a lot of concern about nutrients, especially escaping or pathogens even. That's kind of my job, figuring out how to land apply it in the environmental way, but maximizing our use of the nutrients so that way we can grow the crops to then feed the animals again. It's all part of the sustainability cycle. On the it part. is. I think that's what's so, uh, people always, you know, how does, how does a girl from Pennsylvania get into manure management? <laughs> I think I've always been interested in how we grow our food and I've always been interested in water, you know, grew up fishing, boating, all of those things, and always wanting to protect those resources. Working with livestock has been a lot of fun because it it's just so integrated with everything I've ever learned throughout school is, is how everything works together. And I help get to help recycle things. So that's always cool too. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about on this podcast that, you know, the forgotten nutrient is water when we're talking from a nutrition side for the animals. To me, the forgotten element when we're talking about building design, fields, fertilizer, anything on that end is manure. 
Um, it, it has to be one of the biggest things you think about when you're designing a building and, and how what you have to think about when you're putting animals in a location, no matter what you're doing. It can be handled really, really well, and manure can be very, very valuable. Um, but it again, it somehow gets forgotten about sometimes. I think that's changing a little bit. Uh, it's probably because of people like Melissa out there teaching people how to use it correctly. But we're seeing more and more of deep pit barns and, and buildings that are being built specifically so that people have access, easy access to the, this manure. Tell me, tell me why manure is valuable. As, I guess that's a really, really long way to ask you why is manure valuable. Well, I kind of joke that it's basically a nutrient source like a, with a probiotic for your soil. So not only do you get the nutrients, but you also get the carbon that feeds the um, good soil microbiome as well as probably adds a little bit to the soil microbiome as well. So it comes with multiple benefits compared to just fertilizer, which, you know, at least you can dial in and get the exact nutrients you need, but it's not also feeding the soil. I get that question a lot, you know, why is manure more valuable than fertilizer? Uh, and and that's, that's a great way to explain it. I, I think that's perfect. So the question I have is manure is not really manure, is it? It's not all the same, right? No, it definitely depends on one, what are you feeding the animals, right? Your cattle that are on the high protein diets because their milking is going to be way different than your dry calves and beef, et cetera, depending on what they're being fed. Then you have the ruminant animals with their four stomachs. They're going to digest the food way differently than hogs, horses, whatever it might be. So all of it is really different. And then how you handle it. They say there's estimates of up to 40 to 70% of your nitrogen can be lost from the point it exits the animal to the point you apply it to the land based wow. on just how you handle and store it. So there's lots of different factors that can influence what kind of a nutrient source it is. Wow. Well, that I, I mean, didn't I realize guess that... you could have that much nitrogen loss. That's yeah, it's significant. That's a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, so animals eat plants, right? So they should be pooping out the exact nutrients that plants need. But because we lose so much nitrogen, what happens is you end up having to apply like double the amount of nitrogen or double the amount of manure to get as much nitrogen as you need because you lost half of it. That, and that over applies all the other nutrients. So there's kind of this imbalance that happens, unfortunately. Well, that probably brings us to the importance of testing, right? I mean, just like we talk about with testing forages on the front end, like you, there's no way to know what you have until you test it, right? Exactly. That's one thing I wish people would do more of. We spend so much time making sure we're feeding the animals the exact right things. Don't we want to know exactly what we're feeding our plants that then feed our animals? And it really varies. I got, I asked a couple of the regional labs to send me manure analysis data. So it ranges from 2012 up to 2018 or so. And we ended up getting 66,000 samples from the region of manure data. And I would say like beef and dairy, sometimes the nitrogen content will differ between 30 to 40 pounds between barns. And that's like the average number, not like the crazy barns that, you know, had manure analyses that don't make sense. So if you think you have, I don't know, say you're applying 20 tons per acre and you think you have one set of nitrogen, but you actually have 40 pounds less, when you multiply that by 20 tons, that ends up being pretty significantly different. When you're saying 30 to 40 pounds, that's on a per ton basis? Yes. Okay. And I guess... 
my apologies. I was thinking of the swine because they can certainly have that big of a range. With beef and dairy, it's a little more dilute because there's usually more liquid or bedding associated with it. Uh, but even so, it's probably 30 to 40% rather than the actual pounds per ton. Okay. So, I mean, we're talking a big, big difference between different different barns or different systems, uh, depending on what's going on, you know, feeding what you feed, how much nitrogen you lose, all those different factors, right? And you talked about already the complications of, well, I have to apply twice as much to get the same amount of nitrogen that I need, but that over applies everything else. How, how do you fix that? There's a couple ways. One is think about the rotation. So if you know how much phosphorus you need for the corn and the soybean, you can think about then you wouldn't apply, you know, phosphorus fertilizer for the soybean, then you would get that phosphorus, hopefully from the application that you did for the corn. So thinking about the rotation and there are people who are starting to apply at that lower rate to meet the phosphorus needs and then adding nitrogen fertilizer to kind of get it up to where it needs to be. So trying to balance nutrient needs with fertilizers is one way to do it. What are the consequences of getting it wrong? Let's say I do over apply, what, what, what does that do for me? Or what does it do negatively? Uh, over the long term, if you raise phosphorus, the one good thing is phosphorus isn't as leaky as nitrogen. Nitrogen just goes wherever it wants. With phosphorus, the soils can build up over time and it does get to the point like, you know, soil is a sponge, but it can get to the point where, you know, if you keep filling up the sponge, the water just starts pouring out of the bottom. And that's what happens with phosphorus. If you get these really high levels, it starts to become mobilized in the water. So you can lose it through your tile or down to the groundwater. And the other thing is, and probably more importantly, is that regulations start to kick in about when and where you can apply manure if your soil phosphorus test levels get too high. And obviously we don't want that in leaking into groundwater. Like that's the ultimate no-no, right? Yeah, especially if it gets into like lakes and freshwater systems. Phosphorus, again, is not like nitrogen. It doesn't turn into a gas. It just stays in the lake. And then it like goes through this natural cycling system where it causes algal blooms and things like that. And maybe I'm just disconnected, but we hear a ton about nitrogen, 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 nitrogen. But uh, we don't hear a ton about phosphorus. Is that just because nitrogen is the current buzzword or is it just because people want to ignore phosphorus or? Coming from working with nutrient management planning and livestock farms in Maryland and phosphorus was the big thing. Um, but there they have issues where they have a lot, a lot, a lot of livestock concentrated in single areas. And they were getting like soil test phosphorus levels just completely through the roof, like never going to come down in the next couple of decades or centuries even. So wow. phosphorus was a huge issue there. Here in Minnesota, nitrogen certainly is an issue because we continue to see groundwater levels rising. And that's problematic for health reasons when that gets into your drinking water. Another thing with we have a soil type in Minnesota, particularly in western Minnesota, that has a lot of calcium in it and it tends to bind phosphorus. So it becomes like, it's harder to raise the soil test levels. I mean, you still have to worry about raising the levels, but it takes longer to do so. So I don't think people seem to be quite as aware of phosphorus being an issue. Well, you have done research out at the research center in Morris and we see that issue. Our phosphorus levels don't seem to be too much of an issue now. From the swine manure, we can feed phytase, you can feed phytase, which reduces the phosphorus load in there, but we tend not to have 
much of a problem with phosphorus in our area just because of the factors that you said, Melissa. Yeah. One of the things that I like, I've been, we've been coming back to a, a bunch, and this is something that we talked about uh, with a couple of different people on this podcast is looking for the things that farmers can do that we consider low hanging fruit or the biggest bang for your buck improvements or changes. And I'm sure this is something you run into. What are the, what are those things that you continually run into that you wish people would do that they're not currently doing that would make the biggest change or the biggest improvement for them? I think one of the things is certainly, we already talked about it, testing your manure. Um, of those you know, 66,000 or whatever samples I got, about 50,000 of them were swine. <laughs> and then the rest were split out between dairy and beef, which suggests the swine producers are certainly getting their manure tested, whereas maybe dairy and beef producers could improve a little bit. Uh, the other things are definitely keep track of your manure plans and keep up on those soil testing levels. Really, we like to see people thinking of manure as a resource rather than a waste. And I know it like you just want to get rid of it because it's not making you money, but trying to think of it in your nu nutrient management planning and how you can recycle those nutrients so that you don't have to buy more fertilizer is always helpful. But again, trying to balance those phosphorus and nitrogen needs can be important over the long run, especially when you, you don't want to be butting up against regulations. I, I'm assuming that most farmers have, at some point they have to test soils, right? I mean, they have to know if they're going to apply manure, is there a requirement to test the soil? It depends on size of operation. Obviously the really large CAFOs are pretty heavy regulated and they have to test their soils every four years. And then in Minnesota, we have permitted facilities, which are 300 to 999 animal units. And they have certain rules that they have to follow. And I believe they have to have soil tests for every four years as well, at least for phosphorus, because you have to know like when you start getting into those levels that become problematic. Under 300, I think it really depends on townships and what their rules are for if they need permits and things like that. Okay, because I, I mean, I'm just trying to think of, you know, why would someone not test? I mean, obviously, because I mean, because they don't want to. I mean, that's part of it, right? But on the man testing manure, I mean, it just seems like a natural fit to me. Why wouldn't you match the manure to the soil test that you just took, that you had to take anyway by testing your manure? What, why, what's the big barrier to testing manure? Well, one, it's a dirty job, especially if it's a salad manure, you really want to get a representative sample. And that can be hard when you have bedding mixed in because, you know, you get big clumps of bedding here versus a lot more you know, feces over here. So it's a dirty job and it can be somewhat inconsistent just because of all of the <laughs> literal crap that's in there or lack of, depends on how much bedding you have. So it's kind of a tough job and it can be inconsistent. And I think sometimes people get frustrated with some of that. I don't know. It's always baffled me. I mean, you're having to test the one anyway. Why wouldn't you test the other? But I get that does make sense. If the if the testing loses value because it may or may not be representative and it's hard to get a sample that's representative, that makes a lot of sense. It can also be kind of expensive. I think like probably the cheapest samples or place I found to run it for just basics, um, N, P, and K is 25 bucks a sample, 27 bucks a sample. And then it can go up drastically from there if you want micronutrients tested and things like that up to probably 70 or 80 bucks. Yeah, that's certainly not cheap if you're going to be running uh, more than one sample. 
something that I've been curious about, and I think actually we may have talked about this before. I, I'm asking about it because I'm thinking that maybe this is one of your pet peeves and I haven't I haven't asked you about it. What's the difference between composting and piling manure? That's a great question. I guess I should have mentioned that composting is um, if you have solids, solid manure system, composting is pretty beneficial. So stockpiling is what we call a pile of manure that is just sitting there. And the thing is, is it can get pretty anaerobic. So there's not much air mixed in, especially in the center of those piles. So it's not degrading as well as a compost pile is. Compost is when you're actively going out and mixing that pile pretty regularly. That gets that oxygen back in so the microbes can degrade that a lot faster. It's kind of like our soils, right? No-till keeps the soil, the you know dark black topsoil staying there versus tillage tends to burn up that organic matter more quickly. And that's just because you're mixing in that oxygen. Um, the nice thing about compost is it tends to reduce your pile size by like 50%. So with composting, you don't have to haul as much. It is more act like you do have to actively manage it, but you don't have to haul as much, which is nice. Yeah, I see. I see that a lot. And I've always kind of wondered you know, a lot of people tell me that they're composting manure, but when you look at the pile, they're stockpiling manure. They're not composting it. So I've always wondered uh, the big difference there. And then I, I see this on the dairy side as well. The composting is really valuable. Uh, like you want to compost because of space. And especially with our dairy, our dairy side of things, as expansions go and we get consolidated, uh, you get, you know, manure systems, storage systems that are out of date for how many animals are on a farm. So I, I think composting is a viable option if you have the equipment and the, and the land space to do it. But yeah, definitely different than just piling manure. The one nice thing is it stabilizes some of the nutrients. It does burn off some of the nitrogen because like I said, nitrogen just wants to do whatever it wants to do. But it does stabilize what's left into more of a slow release fertilizer. So again, kind of building that soil health when it's being applied. So in these pit barns, how how do you handle nitrogen or how does that help is it help or decrease the nitrogen loss by having it piled in a in a semi-liquid form like that and having a cap and all that? So when you have like a deep pit barn, they're depositing the manure straight down. It's not really being mixed until you know it's annually agitated. Uh, but the nitrogen tends to be in different forms than it is if there's bedding, for instance. If you're using a bedded system, a lot more of the nitrogen tends to be in the organic form, which means it needs microbes to break it down to get it into plant available form. And I've been working with a bedded beef pack for two years now, and it actually tied up nitrogen in our crop fields the first two years, which is not what you want to do when you're producing corn. So it, it makes the bedding can kind of dilute nutrients and even cause further complications versus the deep pits. A lot of the nitrogen, it's about 50, 50 in the deep pits, even in dairy liquid storage systems, we see about 50% plant available and 50% is in organic. So usually our liquid manures tend to have that plant available nitrogen ready a little more quickly. What, what kind of bedding was that? Was that straw or what, or with the beef, was it wood chips or? No, we did one year it was corn stalks and another year it was some sort of, hey, I can't remember what straw it was. Hmm. It was oats or something. But yeah, it was... I think the bedding choice is uh, pretty important because 
that certainly can tie up nitrogen like you saw. We have had that issue with, that's why we stopped with our compost barn and using wood shavings and wood chips because wood does not break down very well in manure and it ties up nitrogen for the corn the next year. So yes, yeah. wood is bad yes, from, from, a manure, from a manure management perspective. Yeah, I guess it depends on what which way you're looking at it. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful betting for cattle, but it really affects uh, things down the line that we tend not to think of. Mm-hmm. Kind of along those same lines, we see a lot of dairies with sand, right? Sand bedding. How does sand impact that manure value? I know it's hard on equipment, so like that's a big piece yeah. of it, right? But yeah, that's basically what I was going to say. It's kind of an inert material, right? Because sand doesn't have nutrients. So it basically just, it does make it a little more difficult because it's pretty hard on the equipment. Okay. So other, other than that, I mean, it's not really affecting a ton uh, other than just the equipment breakdown. Yes. That's okay. what we've seen so far. A new thing coming in is that we're starting to see more of the liquid solid separation from barns, from dairy barns. And that's interesting because it takes out some of the like solid materials, which takes some of the nutrients with it too. We did some studies trying to see if that released nutrients any faster than non-separated, just raw liquid dairy manure. And we haven't seen too much, like in one year at one site it did, but then at the other years, it was pretty similar to that. So a lot of people had concerns about that. Would that behave differently than just raw dairy manure? But I'd say right now we're not thinking that it does uh, but it does it has an interesting implications on the cycling of the nutrients that stay in the barn because some of these places are doing the liquid solid separation and then taking the solids and putting them back in the barn for bedding so we kind of have we don't know what's going to happen over the long term with like the carpet in the manure will that slowly break down like how how does that all work that's kind of an interesting thing that's going on it's it's becoming more and more popular, right? The, these recycling systems and using manure as bedding. What else are you working on? I mean, we should get into that. I mean, what what's the big projects you've got going right now? Uh, we got a couple cool big projects. One is integrating cover crops and manure in the fall. That's one of the things we're doing up at the research center in Morris. We also have some stuff down at the research center in Wasika. And just looking at can we get cover crops established before we apply manure? Then if we apply manure, will we you know, just completely destroy the cover crops or can we do it in such a way that the cover crops will actually benefit from manure application? And then can the manure help hold some of the nutrients from fall into uh, when we're getting our plants or crops actually planted? Um, so that's been going cool so far. One thing we thought was if we could get a cover crop really nice and growing, could we apply manure earlier in the fall? Because we don't actually recommend that because we've seen just like significant nutrient losses when the soil temperatures are warm because of those microbes just cycling through things pretty quickly. So we thought if we had cover crops, it would hold up the nutrients, keep the nutrients away from the microbes. Maybe we could get away with early fall application. And we did it for, we're in the middle of our second year, but for the yield that we got this year where cover crops and manure were planted last fall, two falls ago, it did not work out well. The late manure still outperformed the earlier manure by far. And the late man or the late manure outperformed the spring fertilizer too, in fact, which was interesting. 
and the uh, spring fertilizer outperformed the early fall application. So we definitely saw a lot of nutrient losses from that early fall application. And by early fall, I'm talking like September. I mean, we, we hear about cover crops all the time, right? That this is a responsible thing to do. And there's all sorts of reasons to do it. Specifically with manure, I mean, you, you just said that like applying earlier, it doesn't really help if you have cover crops or, or not. Uh, you still want to apply late fall. So what is the value in cover crops when we're talking about manure? In that case, the one thing that we're looking at is, are there synergies between manure and cover crops for soil health aspects? And I have a grad student working on this. So he's going to look at like soil respiration, which is an indicator of your microbes in the soil. We're looking at bulk density to see if that changes with the different practices. Um, I don't think we're going to get to look at soil aggregation because we don't have one of those. They have these fun contraptions that look at like how the soils hold together and all kinds of stuff. I don't think we we're not that technologically advanced in my lab, but we're just trying to see if there's these synergies that can kind of help when you get the probiotic nature of the manure, plus like all the cool root exudates that cover crops put into your soil. You pointed out early in the episode, we have to address it. Uh, we say the word manure very differently. Very we differently. Do. We do. I, I, so Emily, can you, can you say it once? Manure. Okay. Bradley. Manure. Manure. Okay. Go ahead, Melissa. Manure. Okay. So you've got an O in there and that's, <laughs> is that from, is that an East coast thing? I don't know. When I go home, like my family are not farmers, so they don't ever say the, the words manure. So I don't know where I picked it up from, but I noticed it when I moved back here and was, you know, out talking to people, we had like a little survey. I was like, I'm saying it differently than all of you are, but none of you say it the third way, which is manure. Yeah. I, manure. We, yeah. We don't, we don't say manure. I feel like I sometimes say manure, like, like if I'm with somebody who says it and they say it that way, then like, I'll just start saying it that way too. <laughs> yeah. We need to, you know, we need to call John David. I bet you he says manure. Oh, I bet. There's, there's no he way he probably doesn't. doesn't say manure. It's probably other words. <laughs> or maybe that's word. true. Maybe that's true. Hey, but while we're on that topic, Bradley, how do you say antibiotics? Antibiotics. <laughs> Antibiotic. <laughs> ah, it's always funny. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's a good good deal. Another t-shirt always idea. Of, always making fun of the, the tenured professor, I guess. So be it. Yep. It's part of it's part of that title. We, you know, we have to, if you become tenured, you get made fun of on the Moose Room. It's just a rule. Oh, okay. Well, I won't join next year then. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know when I'm going to get tenured, but. <laughs> don't, do don't do it. Okay. Well, I think, I think we've covered uh, some of the oh, basics. There's so much I, more. Go ahead. Can I, can I, can I cover a up and coming issue that we are seeing in Minnesota? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So there is an invasive weed called Palmer amaranth. And it is oh, yes. not fully established in Minnesota yet. We found it in a couple places. And it is like, they're so afraid of it getting into Minnesota that if anyone finds it, MDA shows up and like burns down the plant so that it doesn't spread its seeds. Like this thing can spread hundreds of thousands of seeds for one plant. And they're very concerned about it getting into the state. So anyone who is importing feed from down south or Nebraska, or wherever this seed might have already become infested, 
um, you need to like really make sure that they are aware that this is a problem and that they don't potentially have contamination issues. Um, they had an, I know they had an issue, I think it was up in North Dakota where someone had brought, well, even in Minnesota, some of the spreading issues have been when uh, like sunflower screenings or other screenings are brought in from out of state and it can become a big problem real fast. Even the animals that eat it, I think like 90% tends to get kind of get killed in the gut. But when we're talking about one plant that they only need one seed that survives that can then cause problems. So that's something to keep in mind that that's, that's an issue that we're worried about. Yeah, it's, it's a big issue. And, and like you said, it's a screenings from down South. Uh, I think we, I think I had seen cottonseed uh, yeah. shipments had been an issue as well. The big, big issue is that it's really hard to identify this plant, right? It looks a lot like other plants in the area, like uh, water hemp. That's right. So yep, pigweed. What, what are people supposed to do? If they think they see a plant that looks like uh, Palmer amaranth, what do they do? I believe there is a hotline that you can call. And I would just do like Palmer amaranth, Minnesota, and you'll find um, that on whatever search engine. I think it'll come up pretty easily. Perfect. I'll uh, I'll try to put it in the show notes so that everyone can see who you're supposed to call and someone who knows what they're looking at can come out and look at it. Yeah. Uh, don't just start burning down plants without having someone uh, have a peek at it and look at it. That's important to know. Have you seen it out in the field, Melissa? I have not, but there have been reports in the state because, I mean, usually they burn it down before many people can see it. But I think most a bunch of it came in with some conservation plantings at first. But there's been at least two cases, I think, now where it came in with contaminated feed and got into cattle manure. In fact, one of my research projects is figuring out how to like sort these tiny, tiny little seeds out of manure, which mm. is a fun project. Um, so that way in the future, we could potentially, if it's suspected to be in the feed, we could potentially sift through the manure and send the seed for genetic identification. This is a bad plant, bad plant. I'm starting to remember pieces of Chrysis's presentation about this and it will completely take over a field. I mean, completely crowd out soybeans. I'm talking yeah. you know, 50, 60, 70% gone because of this plant. And it, it could be like news. seven to eight feet tall too. Yeah. So just even corn, it, it survives in so. All right. Well, look for that in the show notes. I'll put the, the hotline number. I'll find it and put it in there. So if you do see something that looks like that, make sure you give that a call. We do not want that in the state. I think with that, we've recorded long enough. Uh, it's time for happy hour. We're going to get out of here. And uh, we appreciate you listening today to our PooCast. If you have comments, questions, scathing rebuttals, please send them to the Mooseroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Please check us out on Facebook at UMN Dairy and at UMN Beef. Check out the website, extension.umn.edu. Melissa, give us your plug for nutrient management. We're at menor.umn.edu for our website. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at menorprof. With all those spellings of manure, you use a U, spell it correctly. Don't use an O based on how Melissa is saying it. Check us out on Twitter as well, at UMN Mooseroom. No more plugs. Thank you, everybody. Catch you next week.
Bye. 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 Emily, can you can you say it once? Manure. Okay, Bradley. Manure. Manure. Okay, go ahead, Melissa. Manure. <laughs>